El Fanboy, episode 11. Francisco Robles here, and this is the 11th episode of the El Fanboy Podcast. Uh, yeah, sorry I've been a little quiet since last week. It's been it's been a hectic one. Um, both my kids have birthdays within nine days of each other, between the end of April and early May. So this time of year becomes a marathon of birthday mayhem for the Mrs. and I. Uh, spent most of last week getting the house ready for a 12-hour-long party we threw for both our kids on Saturday. We had 60 people over, and it was just, it was epic, and it was chaos, but um, it was also, you know, just a ton of work. And today is actually my little girl's sixth birthday, so once I'm done here, Daddy has to go deliver some cupcakes and goodie bags to her school for her little classroom birthday celebration, and tonight we got a family dinner at a hibachi joint, which was her request, by the way, so that, you know, that marathon continues. It's also just, just been a busy week. I became, like, the social media ambassador for my DJ company, and I'm taking on a more active role there, trying to grow things. I also upgraded my equipment and I had to set all that up. Um, then, yeah, and just working, it's just, it's, it's been a very exhausting week. So, you know, that, that meant I kind of had to put some of my El Fanboy stuff on hold overall. And, you know, I know I teased last week that I was going to be making some tweaks to the show and, and, and stuff this week, but I just didn't get the time to do it. Uh, in short, I've, I've got some new music stuff coming, new logos, and a more streamlined focus coming on the horizon. But for now, it's on hold. So you're going to have a, a kind of more old-fashioned episode of the show today. Um, one of the reasons I've been sort of MIA, I guess, is because sometimes I just need a break. You know, there are days... And by the way, I don't mean like from you guys. I love you guys. I just need a break because sometimes there are like weeks and months and... and I just feel like I spend all of my time glued to one screen or another. You know, if it's not my laptop, it's my TV. If it's not my TV, it's my smartphone. When I'm not reading or watching something on my phone, I'm listening to a podcast on it in the car. I tend to feel like I'm just bouncing from one distraction to another with zero time to just sit and breathe and think and be bored and just be a person. So, you know, I'm just filling my head with noise constantly. So, you know, amidst all the running around I've been doing on the home front for the last week or so, I just tried to have a quiet week on the social media front, uh, which, you know, of course meant I had plenty of time to play more Zelda. So, you know, uh, priorities. But um, anyway, um, you know, I, I, I got to just before I get into anything, I want to just thank you guys, too. You guys did an absolute wonderful job responding to my new question of the week format by asking me some pretty great stuff. And I'll be getting to all that in just a little bit. For now, let's catch up on what entertainment I did allow myself to uh, ingest in the last seven days. So right off the bat, uh, guys, there's a movie I need you all to watch. It's kind of a no-brainer, really. If, if, if you're a supporter of mine, 
And part of my appeal for you is my ongoing dissection of the DC Extended Universe. There is a documentary that's practically a companion piece to what I've been writing for years. It's called The Death of Superman Lives, What Happened? And it's available on Showtime On Demand and elsewhere if you're willing to rent it. Uh, It takes an extensive look at the aborted Tim Burton film Superman Lives. Yes, the notorious flick that was going to see Nicolas Cage playing Kal-El. It's a fascinating documentary because... It peels back all the layers of the rotten onion that the development of that movie was, and it perfectly exemplifies the kind of behind-the-scenes atmosphere, or chaos, rather, present over at Warner Brothers in the late 90s, and how that all served as a launch pad for some of what ails the DCEU even to this day. Um, and yeah, what I found like particularly surprising is that, yeah, you know, it's fascinating to see all the ins and outs of a canceled production, uh, but what, what kind of made it even more surprising for me is that it did something that I didn't think was possible. It made me wish that Superman Lives would have actually been made. I'm serious. By the end of that documentary, some of the points they were making and some of the comments by the creative forces involved with the movie actually made me a believer I walked away from the death of Superman Lives actually lamenting that the flick never got made. Go figure. So check that out, guys. Really. Uh, Outside of that, I did get to go see Fate of the Furious last week, as some of you know. And I made sure to pregame for it heavily at the bar down the block from the Midway Theater. So I was really loose, really happy. And the movie itself didn't disappoint. It was exactly what I thought it'd be. And that's a good thing. Just a big, dumb thrill ride. I I don't really have, like, a ton else to say, since it's not exactly a movie that requires my usual uh, analytical dissections. It's one of those where, you know, if you you dig just beneath the surface of Fate of the the Furious, the whole thing comes apart. So I'll just leave it at, it's a beautiful bubblegum movie that deserves a B rating. BBB. It's all about the Bs. It's bubblegum, it was beautiful, and it's a B-movie. Anyway, okay. Um, What other entertainment have I been consuming? Uh, Okay, I've been marathoning another true crime podcast. It's called Sword and Scale. If anyone out there likes true crime, I know that's actually a very big one for a lot of people. Uh, It took me a little while to get into it because, you know, Case File is still my drug of choice when it comes to true crime podcasts. Um, But you know what? You know, Sword and Scale does a great job being more of like a documentary style clinical investigative report. Uh, Whereas Case File, which is my first love, is more about like sharing the narrative of the story in in a more like almost cinematically immersive way. So, you know, totally different types of feels, but if you're into true crime, uh, Sword and Scale is pretty dope, man. I've listened to, like, four episodes of that in the last week, and they're each, like, an hour plus long, so that's a lot of hours just glued to one podcast, you know what I mean? Uh, Very happy, too, because two of my shows came back. Uh, Last week, Veep came back on HBO, and this week, Silicon Valley came back on HBO, And that just makes me fucking thrilled. 
Uh, they're two of my favorite comedies and further proof that HBO is a monster when it comes to TV series. There's pretty much never a time when, you know, like there's never a time in the year where there isn't a series of theirs that's on that I like. You know what I mean? Like when one ends, I just go back to HBO the following week and another one has returned. Um, so, you know, seriously, guys, if, if you haven't yet given Veep or Silicon Valley a try, I strongly suggest that you do. Very great ensemble comedies, very intelligent, well acted, well performed, fucking hysterical. And now they're both back. So, hello. And just as I welcome those two shows back, I had to say goodbye to a show last night. Uh, yes, the biggie for me today is that I watched the Bates Motel finale live last night. Um, without spoiling anything, since it did just happen, and some of you who do watch it might not have yet gone to your DVR, uh, I'll just say it was a very satisfying finale. Uh, you know, after five seasons of introducing all kinds of characters and plot lines, last night's finale seemed to truly deliver in a lot of ways where many other series seem to fall or fail. You know, um, I think it's because they left the, the relative scope of the series pretty small. The whole thing's pretty tight. You know, oftentimes you can almost sense that a show's producers are eager to expand the canvas of their series because they're scared that the core premise and characters, the core ones, won't be interesting enough to sustain people's interest for several seasons. So they add all kinds of B plots and C plots and extra supporting characters, then... Once it's time to wrap things up, it becomes damn near impossible to adequately close all those narrative loops or honor the connections your audience has made to certain characters or story arcs. Bates Motel was very smart about that. They knew that they had magic with the main Norma-slash-Norman dynamic, that they had two fantastic actors in Vera Farmiga and Freddie Whitmore as their leads, and that they didn't really have to spread things too thin. Every character that entered the fray was used wisely and dispatched of intelligently. There was really like, there was like zero fat on that show. It was trim, it was taut, it was streamlined storytelling, and that allowed for a finale that really put a nice, neat bow on the whole thing. So my hat's off to Carlton Cuse and the rest of the people involved with Bates Motel. Uh, that show will be missed. The missus and I were already starting to get depressed as it ended. We are like, oh no, this is over. You know, we spent five seasons, 50 episodes watching this story unfold. And while it was, you know, sometimes a little campy or whatever, they had some fun with the tone from time to time, I thought it was a very well done uh, adaptation of the Hitchcock movie, or rather the, you know, the mythology of the Hitchcock movie. And uh, yes, it, will, it, it shall be missed. Um... And, you know, and aside from Veep and Silicon Valley returning to take its place, uh, Better Call Saul came back last week. The Leftovers recently came back. I have to catch up on that. Then by the time that's done, you know, Game of Thrones and Ballers will be back this summer. And then those will carry me into the fall when The Walking Dead and hopefully Kurt Sutter's Sons of Anarchy spinoff, The Mayans MC debuts. I don't know if you guys saw last week. Kurt Sutter released like picture and video, I believe, from the set of the pilot of the Mayans MC spinoff, uh, which takes place a couple months after Sons of Anarchy ended. 
And I don't know, I mean, we've never really had a chance to discuss this, but my wife and I were huge Sons of Anarchy fans. Uh, I was actually so big on it that, like, when I first got into it, I marathoned the first three seasons by myself, and I was fully caught up. And then just before season four started, uh, my wife wanted to get into it. And I'm like, you know what? Fine, let's do it. And I rewatched all three first seasons, uh, like getting ready for season four. So I don't. I, I'm not usually one to rewatch a series, but Sons of Anarchy, man, I really love the fuck out of that show. So you know, you see, guys, I know, I know, you guys give me shit about my TV habits, but I, I watch TV. You know, despite my ranting like a scorned lover last week, I've got a pretty stacked slate of shows. And just to sort of circle back to that from last week, I'm still hurting. Oh, I'm still hurting from the sudden demise of Masters of Sex. Uh, you know, I, I wish I'd known that it got canceled. I should have checked, I guess. I was just so scared of spoilers that when I decided to marathon episode, uh, seasons three and four, I just assumed that season five was on the horizon. If I'd known that, then I would have just left that fandom alone. You know, I, yeah, of course, I was a little bummed that I had to let it go after season two when uh, I stopped having Showtime. Um, but I would have just left it at that because watching three and four, me dejó con ganas, entiendes? It left me with that, like, I want to know where these characters ended up. There were things that were in the works. There were stuff they were building to for years. And Masters of Sex just season four ended on like a whimper, man fucking annoying um but anyway uh let's get to my main directive and focus this week you yes you my listeners last week i asked you to tell me what you wanted me to cover on this week's show Uh, rather than doing the question of the week where i ask you guys something i asked you to tell me and geez you guys did not disappoint uh though before i start because I just said, guys, I'm just curious. It's got me thinking, do I have any female listeners out there? Uh, if I do, ladies, please tweet me or or reply in some way. Just trying to sort of focus group here, trying to see if El Fanboy really is the sausage fest I think it is, or if I'm appealing to any fangirls out there too. Uh, so let a brother know. Anyway, so... Um, for starters, just want to address a couple of the requests, you know, aside from the, the tweets asking me questions, there were also just general requests for, for things you guys want me to explore on the show. So one of them was for an all Star Wars episode, and that'll definitely happen, uh, this year. Can't say when just yet, but it's definitely going to happen. Uh, you know, since this is the 40th anniversary of the franchise and with the last Jedi arriving in December... Trust me, there will be an all-Star Wars episode. Um, There was also a request for an all-DCEU episode. Uh, It was pointed out by someone else that I always sound off on the DCEU, which would make a DC episode kind of redundant. But you know what? The good news is, and I've actually had this, I've been working on this quietly on the side for a while, is I've got something fun up my sleeve that should satisfy that DC craven. It won't be a traditional episode, per se, where I just spend an hour ranting about them, because I can, I can do that anytime, and I'm sure for some of you that's pretty redundant by now. 
But um, I, I, what I'm working on, I think it'll be right up the alley of what longtime readers and listeners have come to expect from me, especially if you follow the El Fanboy YouTube page. See, cheap plug. Yes, the El Fanboy YouTube page. Uh, if you go there and you watch the video that I created for the directors of the DC Extended Universe, uh, that kind of gives you a taste uh, of where I'm heading with with this stuff with DC, uh, and it'll come here to the podcast too. You'll see. But either way, if, if you if for you DC fans out there, for the people who listen to me because you like hearing me go insane about all things DC, watch that video, and it'll it'll point you in the right direction of what's on the horizon. Uh, I plan on bringing that to the you know bringing that to you guys in June to coincide with the arrival of Wonder Woman. All right, DC fans, so so sit tight. There's some stuff on the way on that front. Um, now, speaking of the DCEU, a bunch, of, a bunch of you mentioned that that Joss Whedon has finally commented on his Batgirl movie. Uh, you know, that, that's been a topic on the show now for, for a couple of weeks, um, you know, because there, it's, there hasn't been anything official. They announced it like a month ago now, and there's been no press release there's been nothing about it. So, um, you know, we didn't finally said something. Uh, my thoughts are, you know, it's hard to say. I, I, I'm thrilled that he's talking about it because that means it's it's in the ether. And in some way, shape or form, it's on the way. But I got to agree with Tavo. You know, I got to agree that I just kind of get the sense that the whole thing is still in the very earliest of stages. And that may be why there's been no official announcement. You know, I'm thinking he's still in the, like, the, the development phase, the in-talks phase of things. And someone maybe at WB prematurely leaked that it was a done deal, hoping that the response from the internet and fans and whatever would push him to put his foot on the gas pedal. Um, but that said, you know, I get the sense that things are still so early that they could very well still fall apart. You know, I, I get I get the feeling that if Whedon can't get everything lined up exactly the way he wants it, then it's just not going to happen. But we'll see. Either way, it's nice to finally have some comments from Mr. Whedon. I'm fascinated by how it how the balance of power there is going to work out because Whedon is now like a superpower. You know, thanks to making two Avengers movies, uh, thanks to the equity he now has in the fan community. Um, you know, he, he's a major, major force in Hollywood. And meanwhile, now you've got Matt Reeves, who's got like ultimate control over his Batman movie. But meanwhile, you've got to imagine that Batgirl is going to have some sort of relationship to the Batman movies. And then you've also got the, uh, that, that Chris McKay Nightwing movie. I'm just fascinated to see how all these people get together and create a cohesive situation. Uh, and a part of me wonders if that's one of the reasons that there hasn't been like an official all systems go on the Batgirl front. You know, I wonder if Whedon and Warner Brothers and Reeves and McKay and fucking Jeff Johns, I wonder if they're all still figuring out what the exact work style there is going to be. You know, who has the ultimate veto power? Who's really pointing the Bat universe in what direction we're going to go? And now we all have to pull in this direction. You know, I just, I, 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 I'm very, very curious about that, which I guess should come as no surprise 
to people who have been following me for a while. You know, the whole balance of power on the creative end of the DC Extended Universe is just an infinitely fascinating topic for me. Um, but okay, moving on. <clears throat> There's a... Uh, there was a question from Nathan Ivey, which is a very good one, actually. It's probably, probably one of my favorites from this past week. He asked, um, let me pull it up exactly, because I don't want to misquote the man. And here it is. Okay. Nathan asked, my question for the week to you. What are your thoughts on directors that stay with a property for more than two films? With the announcement of James Gunn coming back to Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, I have seen some online that uh, I've seen online that some people like th- like this, myself included, and also seen that the third film in a trilogy can be at risk of failing since the same director has been on since the beginning. Examples of a weak third film would be Sam Raimi's Spider-Man 3 and Nolan's The Dark Knight Rises. So, first of all, good question. I'm very glad you asked it. Um, so look, I, I don't think that there's anything inherently bad about a director sticking with a series for a long run like that. Uh, for me, it comes down to whether or not they still have something to say with these characters and whether or not they're doing it because they want to, or because for some reason they think that they have to, um, so, okay, so you cited Sam Raimi and Christopher Nolan. So let, let, let's stick with those examples for a second. Uh, so Spider-Man 3 sucked balls, right? It was a turkey. But that's not necessarily because Raimi couldn't have made a great Spider-Man 3. You know, the behind-the-scenes situation on that movie was very unique and very hairy, if you'll recall. Uh, Raimi was contracted to make a third Spider-Man, and he had a clear, distinct vision for he wanted to go with the overall series, you know, go with that movie. But Sony stepped in and they fucked things up. You know, Avi Arad and company, you know, rather than just trust him, they put their fingerprints all over his plans and practically forced him to include Venom, just as an example. You know, they, they totally pushed Raimi to make the movie the way they wanted And so Spider-Man 3 ended up being made by a director that didn't really want to be there anymore. You know, I always got the sense that Raimi was kind of demoralized by the lack of faith from Sony. And the fact that he had these like sort of mandates to fulfill. So the whole thing was a very sort of jaded, half-hearted enterprise for him. So, you know, I don't blame uh, Raimi for the dud that Spider-Man 3 was. You know, of course he, you know, listen. No, he, there's no way he gets off completely scot-free from that. But from everything I've read, you know, before, during, and after, it has always seemed like the studio got their, you know, they got way too involved with that movie. And if he would have just been allowed to make the Spider-Man 3 that he wanted to make, things could have gone very, very differently. But as we know, and as we've seen in the years to follow, you know, Sony has had a very weird relationship with that Spider-Man uh, property, where they you know they get they get all these plans and they 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 get they sort of bite off more than they can chew and then it comes back to bite them in the ass and that's why they don't really have Spider Man a hundred percent in house anymore. That's why they went and made the deal with Marvel because Sony has screwed the pooch too many times when it comes to Spider Man. And Spider Man three for me was the first time where that was very very evident, where they just interfere with Raimi's vision. 
And that's why I kind of give him a pass on that one. Um, and in the case of Nolan with The Dark Knight Rises, uh, look, it wasn't that Nolan was forced to make the, the, make the movie in a particular way, like Raimi was, but he was forced to make the movie at all, I think was the problem there. So what do I mean by that? I mean that I mean that I don't think Nolan's heart was in it. You know, he took a long, long time to agree to make a third Batman movie, if you'll recall. You know, I, I always kind of got the sense that his heart was broken by the loss of Heath Ledger, you know, uh, right before The Dark Knight came out. And, you know, he, he had had loose plans to revisit the Joker in a third movie. And Ledger dying, I mean, not only did it take a personal toll on Nolan, because that's, you know, you develop a very strong bond on the set, especially when you're creating something as magical and as mythical as what Ledger created with that Joker alongside with Nolan's vision for it. You know, it took a personal toll. And then creatively, you know, where he thought he might go in a third movie had to be scrapped. Um, you know, so with, Le with Ledger's sudden death and... And the fact that he had other more personal projects he wanted to explore, like Inception and Interstellar and Dunkirk, I think Nolan basically just wanted to fly the coop. I think he, for all intents and purposes, was done with the Batman series for a while after The Dark Knight and really wasn't sure if he wanted to do it, uh, do a third movie. But the studio wouldn't leave him alone. You know, They kept hounding him, as did the press, as did fans, and so he delivered The Dark Knight Rises for years after The Dark Knight came out because, you know, he was dragging his heels, you know, and, and, and that energy or that lack of energy is present all throughout The Dark Knight Rises. You know, it was a far lazier, more hollow film than his previous two Bat films were. And I truly think he only did it so that everyone would just get off his back about it and so he could end it on his terms and also because he knew it would get him the equity he'd need to get his other passion projects off the ground. So the whole thing was more of a like, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours proposition, you know, so that's why to me, The Dark Knight Rises suffered. It wasn't because Nolan was stuck around to make a third movie, but just because his heart wasn't in it. He was just like, fine, let's just get this shit over with. And that's why for me, you know, as long as a director is locked in and loving the world that they're creating, you know, he or she can make however many sequels they want. You know, the, the, the marriage of James Gunn and the Guardians of the Galaxy property seems to be a match made in heaven. You know, it seems like a perfect melding of talent and material. I get the sense that as long as Gunn has time to go off and make one of his own movies after Volume 2 comes out, he'll come back for Volume 3 fully energized and happy to be there. And, you know, he's just too smart and too aware of the usual pratfalls of threequels to let Volume 3 be subpar. You know, I, I don't think Gunn would sign on for Volume 3 unless he felt he had more to say or do with the Guardians. And that whole idea of having things to say or do with the characters is one that I don't think can be overlooked. You know, in the cases of Raimi and Nolan, you know, I, I, I outlined what the issues were there. But another example of like a drop-off um, is what happened with Brian Singer. You know, in Brian Singer's case, 
you know, I don't think either of those things happened. You, you know, Fox wasn't hounding him on how to make the X-Men movies. And he also didn't have a gun to his head to make another X-Men movie. I, I always got the sense that he did love what he was doing. He just eventually like ran out of things to say. He, he, had, he had gone too many times to that well. And by the time X-Men Apocalypse came out, the well had run dry and it was too late. You know, um, I think, you know, if you think about it, I think he as an artist had plenty to say in X1 and X2. As an artist, as a storyteller, I thought he had plenty to say and he was on his way towards continuing or completing that arc. Then everything took a detour. You know, he went to go make Superman Returns. He told Fox, listen, if you guys hang on, I will come back and make X-Men 3. But I, I, you know, listen, Warner Brothers came to me with this sweet deal to make Superman Returns. If it's going to happen at all, it has to happen now. So if you guys can wait, please do. Otherwise, I got to go do this. And Fox made the decision to not wait. They, they instead made the decision to fast track X3 and, you know, the rest is history uh, in terms of all that and Brett Ratner and, and kind of where the series went when Brian Singer was no longer sort of shepherding it. Um, but then, you know, when he returned, you know, he got back to telling the stories he wanted to tell. You know, the first there was first class, which remember, even though Matthew Vaughn directed it, you know, Brian Singer was heavily involved with that. He sort of shepherded that. He produced it. He helped come up with the storyline. And it felt much more like something that was in line with, let's say, X1 and 2. Um, you know, so he, you know, he came back into the world of X-Men with first class. And then he fully came back with Days of Future Past. And he directed that one. And he came up with the story for that one. And, you know, that was a big success for Fox and for him. And it was sort of a high point for him. It brought his career back up to like the back to being a marquee thing again after a little bit of a dry spell there. But then I think that was it. You know, when it comes to Singer and the X-Men characters and that property, I think he hit his wall. You know, he had said and done everything he wanted and or needed to. So we got a fourth or fifth, if you consider First Class his baby like I do. Uh, we got a fifth X-Men movie from Singer, which was X-Men Apocalypse, and it showed he had run out of things to say. You know, he had effectively exhausted all of the mental, emotional resources he had in him to explore these characters. So we got a movie that was bereft of imagination or anything consequential to say. Um, so, you know, if, if somehow Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 does wind up being lame, I don't think it's going to be because Gunn shouldn't have stuck around. Yeah, I, I don't think it's going to have to do with the fact that it's because they had a director for the same director for all three movies. I think if it does falter, it could end up being because of what happened with Singer. You know, because if you think about it, I don't think Marvel Studios has a gun to Gunn's head, so to speak, uh, like like Sony and Warner Brothers did to Raimi and Nolan in different ways. And I get the sense that he does genuinely want to make a third movie. But I just hope that, you know, in developing it, I just hope he doesn't hit the same creative wall Singer did with the X-Men movies. Uh, and thankfully, he's in no rush. It's not like Marvel is hurting for movies to fill their slate and phases with. And I think they know what a goldmine the marriage of Gunn and Guardians is. 
So he has plenty of time to crack that story. He has plenty of time to figure out what's going to spark that flame and, and, and get him going on the third movie, on, on volume three. So uh, I, I don't think there's anything to worry about there. So uh, thanks for that question, Nathan. Uh, and in short, the one-sentence version of that is, no, I don't think there's anything to worry about just based on the fact that he's coming back for a third. I don't think that there's anything inherently evil or worrisome about a director staying on past the first sequel. Uh, I think as long as they've got something to say and the time with which to do it, fucking bring it on. Uh, all right, moving on. Sean Coulter asked me about the title of Avengers 4. So, look, uh, Kevin Feige said that revealing the title of Avengers 4 would essentially spoil Avengers 3, which is, you know, uh, next May's uh, Avengers Infinity War. So Mr. Coulter wants to know what I think that could be. Funny thing is, I think Zoe Saldana accidentally let the cat out of the bag. Uh, you know, I don't know if you guys saw the reports, but recently while out promoting Guardians Volume 2, she referenced the fact that the gang had wrapped up their work on Infinity War and that they'd have to head back to work on Gauntlet later this year. So uh, I think we're looking at an Avengers Infinity Gauntlet or actually an Avengers Gauntlet, I think would be a better title. Um, you know, this tells me that they're essentially reversing the comic book storylines for the movies. Uh, you know, while the books did Infinity Gauntlet into Infinity Wars, the MCU version is doing Infinity Wars into Gauntlet. Um, I, I picked the brains of a couple of my comic book nerd friends, and Scully, actually, predicted that, you know, this is just his, you know, he's spitballing, but he thinks he would not be surprised if Infinity War would end with something of a cliffhanger, you know, with like Thanos finally getting his hands on the gauntlet at the end of the movie, building towards the final epic confrontation between the Avengers and him in part four. Um, that would mean that he'd still be just a peripheral character in Avengers Infinity War, which I guess might be a surprise to some if that turns out to be the case. I feel like after all these years of hyping him, you know, he's, they've been hyping him since 2012 when the first Avengers fucking came out. I think a lot of people are naturally assuming he's going to be the main villain in uh, Avengers 3, Avengers Infinity War. But if this is the case, then this would mean that there's likely another big bad that's going to be front and center for next year's movie, uh, for Infinity War, as the final stop on this long-ass voyage towards Thanos in 20-freaking-29. In 29, jeez, can you imagine? In 20-freaking-19. So that would be seven years of hyping up Thanos before we actually get to see, get to see the team throw down against him. Um, also, specifically, I think it would best be served to call it Avengers Gauntlet, as I mentioned earlier. Not Infinity Gauntlet. I just think Infinity Gauntlet is too geeky for mainstream fans. And if you think about it, calling it Gauntlet accomplishes two things. It name checks for geeks. It name checks the comic book storyline they're adapting, which will get them all excited and give them nerdgasms and nerd boners. But it also has a recognizable double meaning for more casual fans and for the narrative of the story. Think about it. A secondary meaning for the word Gauntlet is an ordeal, a punishment, 
being put through hell and being judged for something you did. Kind of fits in with Tony Stark's overall arc, doesn't it? Yeah, the guilt on his heart for the destruction that the Avengers have inadvertently brought to Earth. Avengers Gauntlet could be the final chapter in Stark's quest for redemption as the most heinous, unintended circumstance of the Avengers assembling, Thanos, arrives to destroy the world. Hell, I, I think, this is just me going out on a limb, but you know we know Robert Downey Jr. said he was going to be done with Iron Man soon, or you know in one of these next Avengers movies was going to be the end of the road for him. I think Tony Stark will die sacrificing himself in Avengers 4. That's my prediction. That's that's my prediction right here, right now, that in Gauntlet, or maybe in the climax of Infinity War, uh, Stark is going to bite it. Uh, I think that's where we're building with all of this, where you know, the, his arc ever since the first Avengers movie has been one of a guy dealing with all of the the uh, the ramifications of, of what uh, assembling the Avengers has meant to the Earth. That while they've been saviors and they've been heroes and they've been protectors, they've also escalated the threats that common everyday people have to face. And he's been dealing with that and the collateral damage forever. And having to come face to face with Thanos, um, you know, I think that's going to be maybe how his story comes to an end. Him doing everything he can to stop that. Um, but okay, that's just me sort of running off here. Uh, I'll also like to include an answer to Alex G's question as part of this, uh, since it also sort of ties in with, with last week's scoop, that it looks like maybe Fox and Marvel have struck some sort of deal that's going to allow the fan, the some elements of the Fantastic Four universe to enter the MCU. Uh, namely with possibly Galactus entering the fray. Um, yes, Alex, I think it's very possible that we're going to get an MCU reboot of the Fantastic Four. Uh, even if it's something along the lines of the Spider-Man, Sony, Marvel deal, where they're just sort of like the two studios are working together and Marvel's just sort of borrowing the Fantastic Four. Um I think at some point in the next few years, especially if it's true that Galactus is going to make his presence felt uh, in the MCU somewhere during these next couple of years, uh, I think we're going to see a third uh, iteration of the Fantastic Four, this time, you know, uh, under the creative control of Marvel Studios. Um, and also, you know, um, Unboxing John had a very interesting observation, too. Uh, it ties into a theory... Uh, that came out last year, that Marvel and, and, and Fox had to do some wheeling and dealing anyway, because in order to get these Fox TV series going, like Legion and that other one that uh, Brian Singer is you know going to direct the pilot for, the uh, X-Men TV series, that in order to get the TV rights for that, they had to give Marvel Studios something in return. And back in the day, the rumor was that they were going to give them back the Fantastic Four. Um, and now, you know, uh, our buddy Unboxing John, who's a longtime, you know, reader, listener, uh, who used to contribute columns to the other site I used to work for, you know, he reached out to me and he pointed out that, you know, this could be that, that, you know, that, that, that th th those reports from last week or from last year, this could be, you know, that they could be true. So 
I do think Marvel and Fox have figured something out. And there's going to be some movement with regard to the Fantastic Four and or Galactus entering the MCU. Um, but okay. Then there was Mr. Chris Lesanti who said, um, let me read this the right order. He sent it in, in the form of four tweets. So it's one long thing. He said, do you think Marvel's trend of going with lesser known directors coming from the world of smaller niche films and or TV is inspired by the success of the the Russos or byproduct of the studio looking to surround themselves with talented new voices who can become a part of the studio assembly line? Also, do you think DC's lack of clear direction prohibits them from accomplishing the same thing, since it is clear that they want to have a lot of studio control over their films. Um, All right, so there's a lot here. Let's see. So the first question, with regard to your first question, Chris, um, see, the the cynic in me, uh, right off the bat, says that the reason that they go for people that are from, like, the, the indie world and from TV shows is because they can control them. I hate to put it that way because it sounds like I'm vilifying Kevin Feige and I'm vilifying Marvel Studios. But, you know, you can control them in ways that you couldn't. You know, like you couldn't do that to a Christopher Nolan. You couldn't do that to a uh, Ridley Scott. You couldn't do that to, you know, uh, there's any number of big name directors that Marvel Studios would not be able to have control over. That they would insist on making their own movie. They would bristle at any idea that there's a committee of guys at Marvel Studios who are basically pulling them in a particular direction. So what do you do? You hire people who are looking to make a big splash. People who haven't yet made a name for themselves because they're more willing to like, okay, fine, you know, I'll, I'll play ball with you. I'll make the movie you want me to make. In turn, I'll have a movie on my resume that made $500 million or a billion dollars at the box office. So I'll get to go make the movies I want to make after that. So it's like a, it's a deal. It's a mutually beneficial deal. So I don't think anyone's getting fucked here, but I think that's one of the main, you know, the main business reasons why they would hire some of these lesser known people. Like, you know, the Captain Marvel directors were announced last week. Um, and in general, like you, know, you look at some of these people, and they all come from like the indie world. Um, you know, they haven't really had like a big name, quote unquote, big name director, in a very long time. I'm trying to think. Like the closest they've had to a big name director was like John Favreau, because he had made uh, what he had made Elf. He had made you know, he'd made a couple of things, but he was still relatively not a household name yet. Uh, and then I guess you could say Shane Black, but even him, you know, the biggest movie he had directed up to that point was Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, which by the way, if you've never seen is fucking awesome. Uh, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang with Robert Downey Jr. and Val Kilmer. Um, yeah, like they, they've never really hired guys who are like these big household name types because again, Marvel does things more like a TV series does things. You know, they, they have more of that mindset of we in-house are going to decide where the overall story, where the overall franchise, where the overall shared universe is going. And then we just hire someone to help get us from point A to B, from B to C, from C to D. Um, 
you know, which is very much how it is on a TV series. I remember like that, that, that threw me for a loop when I used to work on the CBS series, The Good Wife. Uh, I was, uh, I was a lawyer on that show for like the first two seasons, uh, an, uh, an associate, uh, and that was my first real TV experience. And it, it always boggled the mind that like every week there'd be a different director calling the shots, but like they weren't really calling the shots. You know what I mean? Like there was a different director every week and they were basically being plugged into a machine. That's how it is on TV series. If you watch on most TV series, every episode has a different director. And there are certain ones who come back and sometimes they'll do a few episodes in a given season. But a lot of times it's a different director each time. And it's because those directors are used to kind of like, all right, I'll get onto this vehicle for a little while. I'll work with your producers, your cinematographers, your music people, your editors, and I will advance your story and I'll, I'll put my own slight spin on the, on the look and feel. But overall... I'm just helping you create your product. And I think that's exactly the approach that Marvel wants and the exact approach that Marvel has been taking towards their movies. So I think that's the main reason that they turn to people who come from TV and come from indie movies who are looking to make that crossover, that make that jump into the blockbuster situation. Because it's an easy, you know, it's easier for them to, to control them and it's a big win for them, for, for the filmmakers themselves, because like I said, boom, you know if you're making a Marvel movie, you're going to have a movie that's number one at the box office for at least a week or two. It's going to be one of the top 10 grocers in, you know, for the year. And then you'll be able to go to any studio in town, be like, okay, I want to make this movie, and I just made Doctor Strange, so you're going to let me make this movie, you know? Um <clears throat> And then yeah, if I want to be a little less jaded, um, looking at your question again, Chris, um, you, know, you asked, you know, are, are, do they want to surround themselves with talented new voices? See, the, the, the less jaded part of me says yes. Like if you look at uh, like Taika Waititi, who I've brought up like a thousand fucking times now on this podcast, um, you know, th they are open to people who can within their guidelines make things unique and interesting and personal you know so I, I do think that in their heart of hearts they don't just want a completely you know talent free director who's just going to kind of come and point and shoot and and move them on an assembly line i do think in their heart of hearts they want guys who can elevate or gals who can elevate the material um and hopefully they continue to find that Hopefully they can, you know, they can find directors who, who are not just workmen, but can actually take what's on the page and elevate it. So, you know, you got to hope that somewhere along the line, the people at the doing the quality control at Marvel Studios value that idea. You got to think they do because they're owned by Disney and Disney does seem to understand the, the importance of creating thoughtful stories and things that connect with multiple generations and not just doing things robotically, you know? Then your follow-up question with regard to DC. See, the DC thing is, it, it's hard to, it's hard to wrap one's head around the thing at DC. 
uh, you know, your, your question specifically was, do you think DC's lack of clear direction prohibits them from accomplishing the same thing, since it is clear that they want to have a lot of studio control over their films? I think they're still just figuring shit out over there, you know? Because, yes, they, they, the studio has been very hands-on, but in theory... They hired Jeff Johns to be the president of DC Entertainment so that he can be where the buck stops, so that he can be the quality control who looks at each project, makes sure that everyone's pulling in the right direction, and makes sure that the DCEU has a, an overall personality to it that audiences around the world can, can gravitate towards. So you get the sense that they do want that unified vision, which was sort of lacking before, I guess. But at the same time, they've already demonstrated that they're willing to really seriously fuck with your movie if they don't think it's going to make enough money. Um, and then there's all this stuff, too, where, like, you know, Matt Reeves wants control. They give him control. Uh, we know that James Wan almost threatened to leave last year, and then they gave him creative control over Aquaman. So it's just, it, it's, it's really hard to answer that question, in all honesty, because I don't think that they've figured out what they want to do yet. You know, on the one hand, the, you know, they're still trying to keep this idea of being filmmaker friendly and allowing these directors to really kind of make their own movies. But at the same time, they're trying to make a shared universe where everything works together and there's going to be a Justice League 2 and team-up movies. and oh, It's exhausting, man. I, I, I don't know DC's deal. I really don't. Um, you know, to their credit, they are hiring like known directors, which is the opposite of Marvel. They're not just tapping guys from little indie movies or TV series. They're trying to get big-name people. Uh, but again, how does that work when you have all these auteurs working under your umbrella? How do you keep it all unified? How do you keep it all shared and uniform and, and together? I don't know how one does that. I really don't. Um, so, you know, with regard to, with regard to your question, Chris, uh, we're just going to have to wait and see. Uh, I also, I, I have this weird sinking feeling about a couple of movies that are coming up for Warner Brothers, and I just wonder what the future of the DC Universe, and in Warner Brothers in general, is going to look like, because watch it going, circling all the way back to that documentary I brought up here at the start of the podcast, The, uh, the Death of Superman Lives. Um, one of the interesting things that, that was brought up in that documentary was that at the time that Superman Lives was being developed, Warner Brothers was ha was having a tough, a tough stretch where they were having all these movies one after another that were underperforming. Uh, I can't run down the list now. Watch the movie. But, you know, there's Batman and Robin, which is obvious, in 1997. It didn't underperform, but it was like a big black eye for the studio uh, in terms of the critical response and the backlash from fans, and it was just a gaudy, hot mess. Uh, but then they had movie after movie after movie with known actors in them and, and all these things working in their favor, just, you know, bombing, underperforming, bombing, underperforming, just not living up to what it could have done. And that directly 
impacted the decision to pull the plug on Superman Lives. Because all of a sudden, they needed a sure, safe bet. And Superman Lives suddenly looked like more of a gamble. And they didn't want to make a gamble. They wanted sure things. They wanted safe, bankable bets. And now fast forward 20 years to 2017. And you almost get the sense that Warner Brothers at some point is going to have to like make some hard decisions. Um, I say this because so many of their movies seem to be like they, they keep riding like they put they put so much riding on them and the results are never quite as exciting as you think the studio might want you know you look at I mean there's Batman v Superman which notoriously underperformed last year um, then there's like well, well, fantastic beasts I don't think hit the numbers that they thought it was gonna hit uh, Kong Skull Island didn't hit the numbers they thought it was going to hit. Uh, there's, you know, then you got Wonder Woman on the horizon, and I just have a bad feeling about Wonder Woman. Not in terms of quality, but I'm not feeling any buzz. I'm not feeling any juice. Like, you gotta, you'd have to think. The movie comes out in less than two months, and I feel like, if, if, if the studio was super confident about this movie, we would be getting inundated with teasers and uh, clips and all kinds of positive buzz would already be building. Think about it. Guardians of the Galaxy comes out next month. We've been hearing about how amazing this movie is going to be for like two or three months now. Uh, where is the buzz for Wonder Woman? You know, and, and there was the reports that it's tracking to open at 80 mil, which I mean, you know, it's it's not bad. It's better than Doctor Strange. It's better than some of the B-level uh, Marvel characters that have come out. But, you know, it's on the low end in terms of DC releases. It's on the low end with some, when you think about general, like summer tentpole blockbuster filmmaking with built-in fan bases, you know, Wonder Woman is a holy grail uh, property that's been around forever and is internationally known. And an $80 million domestic opening is like, mm, I don't know. You know, I, I don't know. And then before that, in the non-DC realm, Warner Brothers has that King Arthur movie coming out. And I have a bad feeling that that's going to bomb. I'm like, I'm not getting good vibes about the King Arthur movie. I, I, I'm trying to research the tracking numbers on it. And not, nothing really is coming up. And I kind of, I have a very bad feeling that King Arthur is going to fall flat on its fucking face. Um, you know, and that's nothing against the people involved. You know, it's Guy Ritchie, it's Charlie Hunnam, who, you know, I was just talking about Sons of Anarchy. I love Charlie Hunnam. I just, it, Jude Law, hello, the, the next Dumbledore. But I just get a bad feeling that this King Arthur movie is going to flop. It's either going to flop or it's going to be, it's going to underperform. It's going to be like almost similar to a degree to what Guy Ritchie experienced with the man from uncle, you know, Warner brothers got a big stiffy for Guy Ritchie because of what he did with Sherlock Holmes, where he took an old property and made it fresh again. And those two Sherlock movies did really well. And then he had man from uncle, which again, the same idea, take an old property and put the Ritchie spin on it. And Man from Uncle 
didn't really, I mean, I didn't see the movie, but in terms of numbers, in terms of just the overall buzz it created or didn't create, Man From U.N.C.L.E. was kind of a non-starter. I know that there's rumors now about a sequel, a sequel script getting worked on, but let's be honest, Man From U.N.C.L.E. didn't really light the world on fire. And I have a feeling, you know, King Arthur is once again Guy Ritchie being paired with a with an old beloved property, and putting his spin on it. And I just get the sense that this King Arthur thing is going to fall flat on its face. So I bring all this up because Warner Brothers, at some point, at some point, Warner Brothers is going to have to start a winning streak where their movies do amazingly well. And the money's coming in, the critics are loving it, the fans are loving it. They're going to need uh, you know, to, to start a good stretch here. Because how can you keep greenlighting DC movie after DC movie and the, all these things are going to cost a lot of fucking money if your studio is basically on each movie basically either just breaking even or falling short and still landing in the red? You know, at some point, the, 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 the floor is going to come out from this thing. The corporate owners, Warner Brothers, AOL, whoever owns them at these days, Time Warner, whatever the fuck, somebody's going to pull the plug on all this shit if they don't get on a hot streak soon. Because too many of their movies in a row have been either at even or just below even or just above even. So um, anyway, I don't even know how I got into that. I was not I, I actually I, I brought that up because like that's what I'm doing this week for the for the box office segment. Uh, I'm not gonna do the typical the top five for this week because there's nothing interesting about it. You know, Fate of Fury is repeated, and right now Hollywood seems to be in a holding pattern until Guardians of the Galaxy two comes out next month. So there's really no analysis required for the box office. So I just kind of wanted to talk about the forecast for what's coming up in terms of big movies. Um, so yeah, I have a feeling that King Arthur is going to flop. I have a feeling that Wonder Woman is going to do very soft numbers. Uh, and then, you know, I have a feeling just on the Marvel end of things, I think Guardians of the Galaxy is going to do fucking ridiculously well. It's going to far surpass what the first film did. But, um, yep. So, there, okay, that, that, there, uh, that right there is your box office coverage for this 11th episode of El Fanboy. Um, and while we're talking about uh, Guardians stuff, uh, a couple of things, a couple of things I wanted to share with you. I don't know if you guys heard the news. This is just a minor thing. But, you know, in terms of timeline stuff, Guardians of the Galaxy 2 takes place four years before Avengers Infinity War. Um, so just in case you guys are trying to figure out how all this works in terms of continuity, uh, Guardians 2 takes place a couple year, a couple of months after Guardians 1, which was in 2014 in Earth time. Which so it you know it, it makes a lot of sense that when Avengers Infinity War comes out in uh, 2018, four years will have gone by. And Kevin Feige says that they will have evolved slightly in some recognizable ways. But really, they'll be the Guardians and dealing with the shitstorm they have to deal with. So, you know, I think all that really means is like Groot will be fully grown, let's say, or a little bigger than baby Groot, you know, than he is in uh, volume two. But just to keep that in mind, guys, uh, the Guardians that you are seeing in two weeks are technically in the year 2014. 
So they're going to look a little different by the time we see them again in Infinity War. And that makes a lot of sense. Then there's Mr. Sylvester Stallone, who, uh, you know, he was asked what it was that brought him to Guardians of the Galaxy. And here's what uh, Rocky Balboa himself had to say. Uh, He said, it was interesting because I love Marvel films. I'm not going to do a terrible Stallone for you. I just can't do it. It's not in my heart today. Uh, But I haven't ventured into the genre, so it was quite an experience. When I walked on the set, I saw robots and things, a woman who was seven feet tall and everything else. I thought... This is great. This is a great vacation. It's better than being up a tree in Burma. You know what I mean? Um, and just in terms of how much he loves the idea of mythology and, and how that factored into his decision to join the MCU, he said, Early on in my career, I became fascinated with mythology. Joseph Campbell's Hero with a Thousand Faces, and so on and so forth. When I started doing Rambo, I came to understand there's an evolution that takes place. Every generation has to find itself, to find its own heroes, to find its own mythology. And the MCU is this generation's, and maybe even the next generation's mythology. And when Kevin Feige invited me on board, I said, this is interesting because I haven't gone here. I'm kind of earthbound. I'm terrestrial. This is something that takes place in a whole other sphere where James and the the Marvel people have created their own world, their own reality. So I said, yeah, let me visit. Let me drop in here and see what's up, where the future is going. And it was great. It got me out of the house, away from my three daughters, and that's why I gave my salary back. Good job there. Um, (laughs) By the way, speaking of Sylvester, uh, there is, uh, there's reason to believe that our very own intrepid Kelvin Chavez over at the Splash Report is working on a scoop that is related to Mr. Stallone. Uh, I can't mention one of the other parties involved just yet because they're speaking to us on a, on a, uh, one of those, you know, we need to be anonymous type deals. But it looks like we're working on something that nobody really knows about yet. With regard to Stallone, and it could be something that's very near and dear to your hearts. So stay tuned for that. That's going to be something that uh, that Kelvin is working on, and I, I might help him, you know, bring that out to the world. You know what I mean? Um, now let's see where do we go from here? Because really, yeah, there, there wasn't a, like a lot of news that happened this week that I really get feel like going into. Um, all right, this is one that I want to get, I I just wanted to like circle back to several episodes ago, I mentioned that it looked like, uh, Disney might finally be working on releasing theatrical cuts of the original trilogy, like on Blu-ray, like when you have the unaltered non-special edition cuts of, uh, the original ones, but apparently that is not the case. Uh, it's, it's come to light that Disney has no plans, no plans whatsoever to restore the original theatrical cuts of the original trilogy. So, uh, so that's it. So for now, that seems to be the end of it. And I'm sorry, guys, it's just not going to happen. Um, then there is the fact that Kingsman released a trailer. Did you guys check it out? Kingsman, the golden circle. Uh, they released their first trailer. It's a two-minute-long video, 
Uh, God, that sounded so dated. Two minute long video. Whatever. It was a two minute fucking trailer. Shut up. And I'm very excited. You know, listen, the, the first one is one I really liked. I really liked the first Kingsman. Um, I thought it was hugely entertaining. I thought Matthew Vaughn brought some old school Bond thrills to the genre. And, you know, while the Daniel Craig, D- James Bond movies have been very dour and gray and serious and sort of just blah lately, uh, this reminded me of what the appeal of espionage movies were to begin with when they, you know, when in the heyday of like the 60s and the 70s with your James Bond on the big screen and your Mission Impossible on the small screen, you know, and Man From Uncle and Get Smart, you know, Kingsman was was fun and it was bold and it was bawdy and it was rated R and it was just I thought it was a very refreshing, very sort of offbeat, uh exciting like homage almost to what uh like the the Connery and Roger Moore era of James Bond was. Obviously with that Matthew Vaughn kick ass sort of uh extra a little extra juice that he squeezed out of it. Um and the trailer for this one, you know, uh, the the Golden Circle, looks pretty damn good, man. It looks like they're, you know, like I, I don't have a hell of a lot to say on it. It just the the cast looks great. It looks like it's gonna, you know, tonally, it's gonna follow what we saw in the first movie, and just sort of expand the scope of uh, of Eggsy's world. You know, Eggsy's the the lead character played by Taron Egerton, uh, and I, I I can't fucking wait. I cannot wait. Comes out September twenty second. If you have not seen the Golden Circle trailer, I strongly suggest that you do. Um, and okay, I think that's it in terms of of uh, news. I, I have one news piece I want to talk about, but in terms of like breaking news and things I want to share with you, there's nothing really all that interesting. Uh, there, the, there was the fact that Christian Bale said that he's just done. He says he's he's never seen a superhero movie and he's never coming back, is what he said. Uh, so that was kind of like I guess the last notable thing. But okay, so the uh, the news sort of piece that I want to go go into now with you is the fact that 2018 has just become a huge year for X Men fans around the world. Um, People who are fans of the X-Men cinematic universe, uh, you know, we, 2018 is going to be a fucking beautiful one for you, isn't it? We found out this week that Deadpool 2, X-Men The New Mutants, and X-Men Dark Phoenix all have release dates, and they're all in the calendar year 2018. So there is uh let's go let's go through those dates, shall we? Um New Mutants will be coming out Fox's calendar. Looks like it looks like it's coming out March 2nd. No, April 13th. April 13th will be New Mutants. Then June 1st, we will have Deadpool fucking 2. And then there is Dark Phoenix coming out in November 2nd. Uh, So, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Look at that shit. So, look at that. This year, they have one movie coming out, which was Logan, obviously. And then next year, they've got three. Uh, Last year, they had two. 
So, you know, what I like about Fox is that they don't seem to have, like, they're not tied into a particular release schedule. It's not like an assembly line over there. They are really just trying to make the best movies they can. And, you know, it looks like the timing is just going to line up that 2018 is going to be a huge year. Uh, And let's talk about the three movies for a second. New Mutants, I know close to nothing about. Uh, I know Josh Boone is directing it. Uh, I know it's going to have a sort of young adult sort of thing about it, uh, you know, tonally speaking. And I get the sense that Boone is is being you know, is is being given the creative license to make the movie he wants to make, just as James Mangold was able to make the uh, the Logan he wanted to make, just as last year Ryan Reynolds and Tim Miller Tim Miller made the Deadpool movie they wanted to make. You know, Fox really is trying to go the whole filmmaker-friendly route. And to their credit, they're like, fuck continuity, fuck timeline. We just want amazing movies. Um, <clears throat> then there's Deadpool 2 in June, which, you know, I uh, I had some concerns about since they brought in another writer and they changed directors. You know, while Reese and Wernick are still there and Reynolds is obviously still heavily involved, you know, they brought in, what's his face? Uh... The guy from fucking Daredevil, uh, the, the, I'm not going to pause it. I don't care enough. The guy, you know, the guy, the one from Cabin in the Woods, that guy. Goddard, Drew Goddard. <clears throat> they brought in Drew Goddard to help with the script. You know, I, I always get a little anxious when a sequel suddenly ditches the, the director and the writing situation changes, but uh, I'm not too worried about Deadpool 2. And then there's X-Men The Dark Phoenix. I know Aaron is concerned about them revisiting the Dark Phoenix saga uh, since they already have kind of touched on it a little bit uh, in prior X-Men film installments. I'm, you know, I don't know. I I really... See, since I didn't watch the X-Men cartoons and I didn't read the books, uh, I can't really say, I can't really speak on this with too much authority. But I've always kind of gotten the sense that in the movies, they've only really just scratched the surface of that storyline. I know that the Dark Phoenix in the books was a huge, huge fucking deal. I know that in the 90s, a TV series, <clears throat> the, you know, the cartoon, it was a huge fucking deal. So a part of me wants to say, like, yes, it is a little weird that they would go back to that storyline again. But if they have a way to make it awesome... Uh, if, if they're going to approach it from a different perspective <clears throat> and really, really work to do it justice, then I have no real problem with it. I really don't. But, uh, you know, you guys who know the, the, the core storyline a little better, you tell me. Do you feel like the films have adequately touched on it so far? Do you feel like uh, a more, you know, like, like a, a third exploration of the Dark Phoenix would be overkill? You guys tell me, because again, that, that that's not a, an area that I have a ton of, uh, of of experience and or knowledge on. But all right, with regard to next, you know, to to, to the big XCU twenty eighteen, I personally have very good feelings about it. Um, something that I haven't spoken to you guys about is that several months back. I actually had a conversation with somebody who is very, very high up on the food chain over at Fox. 
somebody who's very, very uh, intrinsically connected, shall we say, to the X-Men franchise. And the conversation instilled in me, at least, a lot of confidence in where this franchise is going. Not because they did the, not because they they told me anything about storylines or the overall direction for the franchise, but because of the accountability of those involved. Uh, this person, who I'm not, you know, I cannot reveal who they were, but just trust me, there's reason to to put stock in this. Uh, this person confided in me that you know they were disappointed in Apocalypse, and it felt to them like it was a step backwards after Deadpool and after what they knew they were working on with Logan. Uh, you know, they knew that, that, that it, was, it, it was a step in the wrong direction. And so they all committed themselves even harder to quality. That's why they took Gambit off the slate and they wanted to really just make sure that that's as good as it can be before they move forward. Um, and this person you know, basically just confided in me that... You know, they know that Apocalypse was no good. They know that the future of the XCU needs to be films that are of the quality and of the caliber of Deadpool and of Logan. They know this internally, and that is why they're you know they're sort of taking their time. That's why they didn't rush out another X Men movie for this year. That's why that you know they're giving each of these films all the time they deserve. That's why Gambit now, if it happens at all, will be in fucking 2019 instead of later this year, like they originally had said. They are really trying to do this right. They're trying to get this right. They, they don't have any delusions of what fans think about the franchise. They know what people's qualms are, but they also know what people love about the X-Men. So they're trying their absolute best to make sure that the rest of the of the series, the rest of the franchise, the rest of the shared universe, so to speak, has that semblance of quality. It is of the caliber of Logan and Deadpool. And to me, I mean, that's that's fucking music to the old ears. You know what I mean? That that's what you want to hear. You want to hear that they're not afraid to be held accountable, and you want to hear that they know that Logan and Deadpool are the future of the X-Men cinematic universe. Um, so, yeah, I, uh, you know, it, by the way, it, it, it was awesome to, to hear from this person that they agreed with me. I, I had written a column a few months back about um, that, if, that, that if the XCU can just get their quality control uh, consistent, that they could actually be the most exciting cinematic universe of all of them. You know, everyone likes to focus on MCU versus DCEU. But if you look at the, the most exciting movies in the genre for the last year and a half, and two of them are Fox movies. Two of them are Deadpool and Logan. So I've said that if they're able to keep the quality control under, you know, un, under, uh, on a consistent level, that XCU is going to become the big main man in all this. And this person who I spoke to, they, they directly acknowledge that about the quality control. And they know that they have to take care of that. So, you know, hearing that to me, and it wasn't like some, you know, publicity thing. They, they didn't want me to like quote this. They didn't want me to publish a report that stated this. This was just a sort of personal conversation. 
And I'm just sharing it with you guys now because I feel like with with what 2018 is looking like it's going to be and some of the skepticism I'm seeing out there, uh, guys, hold all the skepticism. Let's get through 2018 and then figure it out. I have a feeling next year is going to change a lot of people's minds about which superhero shared universe they're most excited about. But... Uh, all right, guys, I think that's enough out of me. Uh, I've got to get over to my daughter's school and then deliver some cupcakes and uh, get on with my day over here. So thank you guys for listening to this 11th edition of El Fanboy. And uh, just like last week and moving forward, we're, like we're going to do every week, send me your questions of the week. I'd love to tackle more topics from you guys, my friends, my fanboys, and fangirls. Uh, on next week's show. Also, please keep the reviews coming in. Please follow me on Twitter uh, at I underscore M underscore MFR. There's also the official Twitter for the podcast itself at L Fanboy Podcast. And there's the MFR L Fanboy Facebook page. So please go like and, and uh, subscribe to all these things. Let your friends know about the show. Let's keep this thing growing. Uh, don't forget the El Fanboy YouTube page. I know it's been a little bit uh, neglected these last few weeks. But like I said, I've got some fun stuff coming up there as well. And uh, that's it, guys. Thank you very, very much. Adios. Y hablamos pronto. <laughs>